back in Nehemiah this morning. We made it through chapter 7. We're into one of my more favorite chapters, which is chapter 8. But just by way of introduction as we're settling in, when I was little, my dad taught me how to work on all different kinds of things. We repaired lawnmowers together in cars. We remodeled a couple houses. And I learned all of these fun, practical skills from my dad. And as a result, it made me just love projects and love restoring things. Some, taking something that's old or broken or not working and making it like new again. And in fact, I enjoy restoring something more than buying something new. Because when you buy something new, all it can do is get scratched and worn out and dented. It goes the other way. But restoring it puts it back to the way it should be. And so I love restoration projects. My big project right now, some of you might know, it's a 1930 biplane that belonged to my dad. Now, if you'll indulge me for a moment. So my dad bought this thing back in 1962. I wasn't even born yet. And for 50 years, he collected all these parts and pieces, and it was his dream to restore it and one day fly it. Well, my dad, uh, here he is at 25 years old uh, with one of the wings. He, he found these parts all over the country, but he never had the chance to restore it. And so uh, my dad became sick in 2016, and he began passing on to me all this knowledge about this project with the hopes that I would take it and complete it. And so he passed away in 2018. And with the help of my dear friend Jim and the rest of my family, we went down to Texas in 100-degree heat. And we moved this thing back to my home here in Campton Hills. And I began work on it. And I don't have a lot of spare time, but I'm making progress. And so that's, that's one of the wings spanning my whole workshop. Now, we don't put cars in our garage. Sorry, Deborah. <laughs> We added a workshop onto it just for this project, but no cars. It's a hanger. And the wings are, the wings are finished and ready to cover, and, and I'm working on the fuselage. It's, it's kind of starting to look like an airplane, which is cool. I've actually sat in it one time, probably the first time anybody sat in it in 80 years. Um, but my goal is to complete it. And I probably got two or three years to go. Here's just to give you an idea. Here's what a finished fleet biplane looks like. We'll do ours in a different color probably. But it's way different than what I'm starting with. (laughs) But I'm almost there. We're working on restoring it. And so, of course, I have to take this little guy flying in it. (laughs) I couldn't help it. Grandpa privilege there. (laughs) We're going down to see that little guy uh, Today, in fact, I'm always telling him, you know, I'm working on your ride, buddy. I'm working on your ride. We're going to go fly around in that thing together. He's our only grandson, if you're new to Riverside, but we're adopting lots of others. Somebody told Deborah last week, you're the church grandma now. And so we'll take that. I'll be the church grandpa. Hold on tight to your kids because I just might take them home with me. Love those little guys. Well, we're back in Nehemiah. And here's kind of what's happening. Nehemiah has been involved in a very large restoration project. The walls 
of Jerusalem were torn down and the gates were burned. And the Lord placed it on Nehemiah's heart to go back and rebuild them. And he gave him all the wisdom and strength and resources to do it. It didn't take six years. It took 52 days because God enabled them in, an, in a really in a marvelous way. And I'll bet that felt so good to have that done. But here's the thing. The most important work was yet to be done. The Israelites had returned to the land spiritually, but they hadn't yet returned to a right relationship with God. They had done a physical restoration, but what was needed was spiritual restoration in their hearts and in their lives. And so the second half of the book of Nehemiah deals with spiritual restoration of people. And so the message title this morning is Restoring Worship. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. And two simple parts to the outline today. The reading in verses 1 through 8. And then the response in verses 9 through 18. Now last week we made it through Nehemiah. As I said, Nehemiah chapter 7. For review, I thought we'd just go back and read that long list of names again. <laughs> kind of reset where we are. No? No. <laughs> Let's not do that. There's some names in here. It's enough. Um, but I do want to back up one verse, because for whatever reason, the chapter break happens right in the middle of a sentence. I don't know of any other chapter quite like that. So let's back up to chapter 7, verse 73, and we'll read the first couple verses, and we'll just kind of pick our way through this. So, beginning in verse 73 of chapter 7. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, I'm going to stop there. I want to look at the reading first in verses 1 through 8. So here it's the seventh month, the month of Tishri, and all the people are assembled as one in the square before the water gate. What do you think of when you hear Watergate? <laughs> right? You think of the, the scandal in the 70s, right? The one that resulted in the, resurrec the, the resignation, not the resurrection. <laughs> that was two weeks ago. The resignation, maybe one day resurrection. I don't know where he was with the Lord. Well, he will be resurrected either way. But the resignation of President uh, Nixon. But this is the water gate, one of ten passageways through the wall. And they called it the water gate because right outside was the Gihon Spring. And the people would carry about 90% of the water for the city through that gate and into the city of Jerusalem. So they called it the water gate. And all the people assembled there, and it says, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, the book of the law of Moses refers to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the Torah. And so, they were actually told to read it every seven years, publicly, before the group. Let me read you Deuteronomy chapter 31. It says, Then Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, in the year for canceling debts, during the Feast of Tabernacles, that's in Tishri, the seventh month, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, Jerusalem, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. 
read through the whole thing. And they hadn't done that in a long time. They couldn't do it while they were in exile. And they probably hadn't done it even for many years leading up to the exile. Maybe as much as a thousand years. And I'll show you why I think that in a bit. So they hadn't been doing what the Lord had said. And it's one of the primary reasons why their nation was in such decline. But now they're back in the land and they saw God do this amazing work through them on the wall. And now they're calling for the reading of the word. The reading and studying of God's word is itself an act of worship. We're not worshiping the book. We're worshiping the author. The God who gave us the book. We're worshiping him through the book. But what is worship anyway? We talked about it a little bit this morning in the Lord's Supper, in the music. What is worship? What does it mean to worship God? Well, the word worship is a contraction of the word worth-ship. And so worth means value and ship means to ascribe. So we're ascribing value. We're placing value in someone or something when we worship. We say This is worth it. It's a worthy investment in my emotions, my energy, my time, my resources. That's what it means to worship. And um, it's it's really another, another definition that we might use too. It's a recognition and a right response to who God is. It's a recognition of who he is and a right response. We're saying you're worth it, God. You're worthy because of what you've done, of who you are. And so we worship him in response to that. Now, one of the ways we do that is through his word. That's how we get to know who he is, what he's done, and what he requires of us. So in verse 2, it says, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. And this is the first mention of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book, it's believed. In our Bibles, it's broken into two. But Nehemiah was the governor. He was the the political leader. But Ezra was a scribe and a priest. He was a spiritual leader for the nation. And he had returned with a group of exiles some 13 years before. About 5,000 people came back with him. So he was well recognized as their spiritual leader. And he was respected. And Ezra chapter 7 verse 6 says that the hand of the Lord was on him. And so they called on Ezra to bring out the book of the law of God. And notice it says that those assembled there before them were, before him were men and women, all who were able to understand. Younger children weren't there in the assembly. It's a little bit like our teaching time here at Riverside. I love that we can have musical worship with the little children in here. They can see their mommy and daddy worshiping God. They can even participate in that worship. I love the voices of the children singing out. But when it comes time for teaching... They go to their Sunday school class where they can learn at an age-appropriate level. And we as adults can learn at an adult level without the distraction of little children. It's a similar pattern that we see here in the book of Nehemiah. So, verse 3, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So Ezra read the word of God 
from daybreak, from first light, is the literal translation, until noon, about six hours. And if people were eager to hear it, it says they were, they were listening attentively. They were hungry for the word of God. As Dave mentioned, during the Lord's Supper, being hungry for the Lord and for his word. Now, Dave tells me that in Africa, where they do training of pastors and ministry leaders and their wives, the people there are hungry for the word of God. They come from far away to hear and to learn. And they come and they worship and they listen for hours. Now contrast that to our United States where people struggle to make it even to church in the morning. And then they, about the most they can tolerate in some churches is like a 10 or 15 minute sermonette. That's it. You start hearing the Bible zip, zip, zipping when you get to about the 15 minute mark. They just don't seem to be hungry for the word of God. And so is it any wonder that our nation is in decline? See, once a country loses its biblical moorings, it drifts very quickly into very dangerous waters. And we see that all around us. Noah Webster, he fought in the Revolutionary War and he became known as the father of American scholarship and education. And he's also, of course, the man behind Webster's Dictionary. The, the original Webster's Dictionary is full of biblical verses. I have a, one of his copies, a, a reprint of one of the very early copies from the early 1800s. But he wrote this. He said, all the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. Isn't that a fascinating quote? It's not... Too many police officers or too few police officers or anything like that. It's a neglect of the word of God. Did you know that the Bible at one time was the textbook in schools? They would begin by reading the Lord's Prayer. And then they'd have various Bible readings even before the roll call. And then reading itself was taught using passages of the Bible and the Westminster Catechism. Yet society, our country has untied itself from those biblical moorings listen to what martin luther the great reformer said he said this i am afraid that the schools will prove to be the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the holy scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of the youth those are chilling words and they're proving to be spot on Many young children today, they're moving down a path toward God. And then they find standing in that path a public educator who's waving them in this direction. And so they make a turn away from God and right into the clutches of the enemy. And ever closer and closer to the gates of hell. Sadly. Our country is in decline because we're not dedicated to the book. Our churches are in decline. And our churches are in decline because they're a void of solid, extended Bible teaching. People want sound bites instead. They want entertainment, not solid teaching. They want to, they, they, the ears are itching to hear what they want to hear, something entertaining. But we should be hungry for the word of God. Psalm 119 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, next 
month, Dave and Jan are going back to Africa to do more teaching there. And they're taking with them Kelly and Deborah. I, I told Deborah I'm going to sign up for the meals ministry when she's gone. <laughs> Me and Nathan. No, we'll be fine. Don't send food. We'll be good. But they're going to do teaching. And I'm sure, I know Deborah's wrestling with this. I'm sure Kelly too. You know, am I really, can I really bring something? I'm not as good as maybe some of these Bible teachers. Can I really bring an edifying message to these people? Maybe that's a concern. Am I up to the task? Well, I want to encourage these people with Proverbs 27, 7. It says this, to the hungry, even what's bitter tastes sweet. You know what? That says to me, you don't have to be one of the world's great orators to teach people who are hungry for the word of God. It doesn't have to be a super polished presentation. It doesn't have to be funny. They're not looking for that. Just do your best to communicate the word and let the Holy Spirit feed the people. And let the Holy Spirit transform their lives from the inside out. To the hungry, even what's bitter tastes sweet. Now, I love that so many people here at Riverside are hungry for the word of God. They want to learn. They want to grow. And when you do that, you are worshiping God. So verse 4, Ezra and the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood, here we go, Medetiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hikiah, and Maseah. And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Nukiah, Hashem, Hashbadona, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And so these guys are up there, 13 of them with Ezra, and they built this elevated platform. I almost picture like a wooden scissor lift, you know, the big thing. And they did it for the very practical purpose, so that the people could see them and so that they could hear them. And probably the wall behind them formed almost like an amphitheater and sent their voice out toward the people. Now, it's interesting, the word pulpit, it comes from a Latin word, pulpitum, and it means simply a scaffold or a platform. That's what they built. Now, I've seen some pretty elaborate pulpits. They look more like a throne than a scaffold to me. You think maybe this is a tad excessive, <laughs> you know, for preaching the word? I don't think that's what God had in mind. Imagine me standing in something like that. <laughs> you know, maybe after we finish the bathroom remodel. <laughs> you think we could work on this? I mean, that's outrageous. Yeah, no, thank you. It's outrageous. Well, a related point to that. Here at Riverside, we don't call this area I'm standing on a stage. We don't. We call it a platform. Because a stage has all this connotation of performance and entertainment and stardom. We, our worship leaders, are not up here to entertain. Our worship team is up here to lead us in worship as they themselves worship. And we don't want to even suggest that it's any form of entertainment or performance. So we simply call it a platform. People who are newer might go, oh, on the stage, and I'll just say, you know, just gently, we call it a platform. This pulpit, pretty simple little thing, but they both just have a practical purpose so we can teach the Word of God, people can see, people can hear. And that's what they did here. 
in Jerusalem before the water gate. So standing beside Ezra on this platform, there were 13 men. They were probably all priests. And they're showing agreement with him. It's a sign of unity as they stand there together and they read the word. And verse 5 says, Ezra opened up the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Now the book, it wouldn't have been bound pages like we think of. It would have been written on long scrolls. And the scrolls would have been made probably of parchment, which is a real fine leather stitched together. Or papyrus, which are reeds that are pounded into a pulp and made into a very durable paper. It's, it's believed that it wasn't until the first century that the Christians began using flat pages. It's, it's believed that Christians invented this idea of a bound flat page book so that they could put more in it and they could find it more quickly versus rolling through these big, these scrolls are 40 feet long. And so anyway, they would have been reading from a scroll. So keep that in mind when you hear the word book. And then another difference from our culture today the people stood up, and oftentimes the teachers would sit down. Would you, you, it was kind of cool that we stood up for the reading of the gospel during the Lord's Supper. Would you, can you imagine standing up for a 45-minute sermon? Would you do that? What about six hours? That's what they did. Are you that hungry that you would stand and listen attentively to the word of God for six hours? I like to think that if you had to, you would. Now, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable as long as we don't start you know, getting the snaps. You know what that is, where your head kind of goes down and then it snaps back up again. <laughs> but they stood, and it shows reverence to the word of God and to the Lord. So, verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Ezra read some kind of opening benediction. Benediction just means good word. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be at the end of the service. We put it at the end. He put it at the beginning. He, word, he read this word and the people responded, amen, amen. Now we know that in worship, it's the attitude of our heart that is the most important. See, if our heart is not in the right place, Worship is of no value. So the heart matters most, but it doesn't mean that the body is not important. The body matters too. And we see examples of this throughout scripture. There are, there are people lifting their hands, bowing their heads, kneeling. We sang it this morning. We lift up our hands. We bow before the Lord. So our body has a role. It's an element of worship. Psalm 134 verse 2 says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. That's kind of cool. And Philippians 2, 10 and 11, you know this, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our knees, our hands, our tongues, our body, they're involved in worship. And that's what the people are doing here. They're lifting up their hands. They're saying, amen, amen. Now, some might think, I don't know, Paul, that lifting up the hands thing, we'll leave that for those kooky charismatics, <laughs> you know. That's for them, but not for me. I'll worship like this, you know. And that's okay. 
But I want to encourage you, our hands lifted are a sign of submission. We're saying, God, I'm submitting to you and I receive what you have for me. And it's amazing how when our body, our body posture, when it emulates what's in our heart, it's, it's just powerful. So maybe at the end of the service, we'll like lift our hands and say, amen, amen, at the benediction. I know, I'm pushing some of your buttons. <laughs> but people can go to a rock concert. They can go to a sporting event. Nobody cares about raising their hands and painting their bodies and doing all crazy kinds of things. But in church, ooh, that's weird. <laughs> Not going there, Paul. <laughs> Keep my hands in my pockets. Well, maybe if you're still opposed to raising your hands, you can just text God that raising hand emoji. Maybe you can do that with your hands in your pockets. But anyway, these people were praising God and worshiping him, not just in their hearts, not just with their words, but with their body. And, and it went beyond just raising their hands. It said they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, I don't think they got down on their knees. I, I was trying to understand the translation. I think they were like this standing. It would have gotten pretty crowded, everybody on their knees. But their heads were bowed down. Again, that's like this beautiful sign of submission to God. Your Lord, your master. I'm your servant. I'm here to do whatever you have for me. So verse 7, the Levites, Yeshua, I need my glasses for these, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Ariah, Jezebad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while they were standing there. And now my favorite verse. One of my favorites in the whole scripture, I say this about a lot of them, but this one really is. I want this to be my life verse. I do. It's Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. And it says, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. How cool is that? They didn't, did you catch it? They didn't just read it. They did read it, but they didn't just read it. They explained it. They unpacked it. They made it clear so that the people could understand it. This is the heart of Bible teaching. I told you before, I don't see myself as a preacher. I mean, there's a lot of con connotation with that. You know, this firebrand pounding of pulpit. You're all going, but, but preaching and teaching are actually different. And it's not all that subtle. See, preaching is the proclamation of the gospel to those who are not saved. But teaching is the unpacking, the explaining, the application of scripture to believers so that the body may be built up, edified, so there might be growth. I say, I think that in this country, churches are over-preached and under-teached. There's a lot of talk about sin and, and all of that, and we need to hear that. But once someone's saved, okay, tell me, how do I overcome the power of sin in my life? How do I draw upon the resources that Christ gives me now that I'm in Christ? That's teaching. That's building up of the body. So teaching is the explanation and the application of God's word for the building up of the body of Christ. 
they explained it in plain English. Only there wasn't English. It would have been Hebrew. They explained it in plain Hebrew. See, they didn't use big seminary talk that made the speaker sound intelligent, but went way over the heads of the people. How was the message? Oh, you should have heard it. I don't know what it meant, but oh, it sounded so good. It must have been good. It used all those big words. No, they explained it and made it clear. One lady told her pastor, Pastor, your sermons are like the peace of God. They surpass all human understanding. <laughs> it shouldn't be like that. You should understand it. Now, there's different ways to teach the Bible. But as a church, we stand firmly for what's called expository teaching. You might hear expository preaching. Same thing, expository. It means to expose or to draw out the meaning of the text. We want to unpack it. We want to see what it says verse by verse. We don't take just a verse or two and then use it as a springboard for discussing a topic or of our choosing. Rather, the text is the topic. And the points come straight from the text. Anything else that we add is simply to help bring out clarity and understanding to what's already in the text. That's expository teaching. It really doesn't do any good for somebody to hear the word of God if they don't understand it. I heard about a Southern Baptist preacher who decided to use a visual illustration to kind of bring emphasis to his Sunday morning. So he took four worms and he put them into four separate glass jars. And the first worm he put in a jar full of alcohol. And the second worm he put into a jar full of cigarette smoke. And the third worm he put into a jar of chocolate syrup. And then the fourth worm he put into a jar of good clean soil. And at the conclusion of the sermon, he decided to report the results. And he says, the worm in the alcohol, dead. The worm in the cigarette smoke, dead. The worm in the chocolate syrup, dead. The worm in the good, clean soil, alive. And then he asked his congregation, what can we learn from this demonstration? And one little old lady in the back raised her hand and she said, as long as you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you won't have worms. <laughs> so much for understanding, right? <laughs> she didn't quite get it. Whenever Dan or I or anyone else stands up here to teach the word, the main goal is understanding. Now, we get to pour over the text for dozens of hours during the week so that we can understand. I spend a lot of time on my knees. God, what do you have for us in this passage? What do we as a church need to hear? And so we can spend dozens of hours, but then our task, our challenge is to distill it down so that you can understand it in about 45 minutes. That's our main goal is understanding. Now, as you know, I like illustrations. They can be fun, they can help keep us engaged, but the goal still must be to help us understand the Word of God. It's not entertainment. Okay, maybe a little, <laughs> so you don't nod off. But if we can get to the point where we understand the Word of God, then a lot of the things that destroy Christians and families in churches 
those types of things will take care of themselves as the Spirit begins to change our hearts. So they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so people could understand what had been said. And then secondly, we want to look at their response in verses 9 through 18. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So here is the word of God is being explained. There was this remorse over sin. It was a sign that God was at work. People understood the righteousness that God desires, and they saw their own life in light of that. And it brought about conviction or mourning or remorse for sin. In the New Testament book of Acts chapter 2, the word was preached and it says the people were cut to the heart. And in Hebrews, you know this verse, chapter 4 verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The New Living Translation says it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. We see ourselves in light of God's righteousness. So the Israelites responded to this, first of all, with mourning and weeping. They were broken over their sin. Now, usually when somebody's mourning or grieving, it's over the loss of something, right? Well, they had lost a lot. They realized they had lost the presence of the Lord and of his blessing in their lives. They had lost 70 years in exile because of their disobedience. They had lost the joy of forgiveness. They had lost their respect for the word of God and its place in their lives. They may have even lost the hearts of some of their children. And so all these things are probably spinning around in their head as they're hearing and understanding the word of God. And it brought tears, brokenness, conviction, mourning, as it should. Now, Nehemiah, or verse 10, in verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice, choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says that godly sorrow leads us to repentance. Godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. I got busted. I wish they didn't know I did that. I'm embarrassed. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance. And repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, a change of our actions. When we repent, we say, God, you're right all along, and I was wrong. And I need to change the way I think about this. I need to change the way I act. I need to stop doing things my way, and I need to start doing them your way. That's, that's repentance, and it comes from godly sorrow. And so in verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. They had their moment of grieving. Now, when we repent and we confess our sins to God, we place our faith in Christ, this side of the cross, we're forgiven. And we can be restored into a right relationship with God. 
And this is found throughout the Old Testament. You might not see the word forgiveness many times, but you'll see something called atonement. Atonement means reconciliation. Sinful man brought back into fellowship a right relationship with the holy God. A restoration of their relationship with God. So atonement. And the people would have heard this as the word was being read and it was being explained. They would have realized, this God, I've sinned, but this is a God of forgiveness and reconciliation. When we're reconciled to God, how can we not be filled with joy? We now have a right relationship with the living God. Listen to this great response, verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and to drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy. Why? Because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They realized that they had received so much from the Lord. They had received his forgiveness and they had received reconciliation and now they wanted to share. They wanted to share this great word. They wanted to share their resources with those who didn't have it. And they wanted to celebrate because they understood the word of God and what it meant for their life. And they made a change and it filled them with great joy. So verse 13 on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the word of the law. They understood the word on day one. They came back for more. They were hungry. Give us more. We want more of this. So they came back again. I heard about a pastor who, he was in India. He was a, an indigenous Indian pastor and he phoned a church friend of his in America and he says I have what a great news there is a very large revival happening in our church now not a revival but a revival well here's the thing he was right if you want a revival in the United States of America it needs to start with a revival it needs to start with the return to the word of God with solid teaching in our churches, with hearts that are hungry to hear and understand and apply the word of God. We need a great revival. Verse 14, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Again, Tishri, the month they're in. And that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths as it is written. This was a seven-day festival that would begin on the 15th day of Tishri. They didn't have much time. They needed to go out. See, what were they doing? They were responding to the word of God. Now they were going to obey what the word said. And so they go out and they help other people too and they bring back all of these branches. Now, it sounds kind of silly, but God instructed them to live for a week in these temporary shelters on their land, sometimes on the flat roof of their houses. And it was to be a reminder to them of when he brought them out of Egypt and 40 years in the desert, they were basically camping. It wasn't glamping. It was, it was, it was kind of rough camping. And, and these booths would remind them of how God providentially cared for them all that time in the desert. 
So this was known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And the Jewish people knew it as Sukkot. And they would construct these little shelters from branches, usually on their roofs, and they'd live in these. Now, some Jewish families still celebrate Sukkot today in Israel and in other places. Their booths are a little more modern. They kind of look like some kind of kit that came from Home Depot <laughs> where you can get it. And they all look very similar. But they would still celebrate it. It was a helpful reminder to these Jewish people of what God had done for them. Just like Christmas is a helpful reminder to you and me. Just like Easter. Just like the Lord's Supper that we celebrated. These things cause us to look back at what God did. And look around at what he's doing in our life right now. And to look forward to what is yet to come in his kingdom. Now, we don't still have to go live in booths like this. Because Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law. He fulfilled it in a marvelous way. And so now we live and dwell in Christ. Just as Dan taught on Good Friday. We're in Christ. We're hidden in Christ. But there's still more to come. Listen to the words of Revelation 23, 21.3. Now the dwelling, literally the tabernacle of God. That's the direct translation. The tabernacle, the booth, the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. See, all these booths were pointing forward to Jesus Christ when God comes to live and to dwell with us. So verse 16, so the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And, there was, and their joy was very great. That's a thousand years. God said to do this. The word wasn't read. They didn't dig into it. They didn't understand it. They didn't apply it to their life. And so they didn't obey it. Over a thousand years. They didn't do it in the time of David and the monarchy. That was kind of the high point for Israel. They didn't do it during the captivity. You have to go all the way back to when Joshua led them into the land at the very beginning. But now they're hearing the word. They're repenting. They're having a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. And now they've set their hearts to obey the word of God. It's not enough just to hear the word. Or even to understand the word. It's not enough just to understand the word of God. Once we understand it, we must obey it. That's the whole point of James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If you, if you hear this today, and even if you understand it, and you go home and you don't do it, you've deceived yourself. So we need to apply it. Paul Harvey, the great broadcaster and commentator, he once said, if you don't live it, you don't believe it. It's just that simple. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. 
Now, has something like this ever happened to you? You're listening on a Sunday morning and the Lord's moving in your heart and he puts some things on your heart. You go, yeah, my, my life doesn't line up with that. I need to change that. I need to do something different here. And, and you're really convicted. And then soon the service ends and like you're meeting with friends in the back of the foyer. And then you go home to a really busy afternoon full of activities, maybe some sports. And then it's Monday morning and work is like, over the top busy, Tuesday, you're busy, you're busy soon, you know, you're moving in on the weekend, you're looking forward to a bunch more stuff, and you realize, I, ain't, I can't even remember the name of the message, has that ever happened, yeah, I've done it, <laughs> what was the name of the message last week, anybody know, guarding the work, I heard two people, <laughs> if that happens to you, see, how can we take and live that out? If we're not remembering it, if we're not focusing on it, if we're not meditating on it, how are we going to obey the word? We're not. We're going to go away and we're going to deceive ourselves. We don't want that. This is one of the reasons why we created the Encore Guide. If you look in your bulletin this morning, something got funny with the audio, John. It sounds different to me. I don't know if it does to you guys. Um, there's an Encore Guide in there. We printed it last week and we printed it this week so you'd have a copy. This goes into a deeper study of the text that we're teaching and the application of it. And on the back, you'll find Encore Kids. Fun activity there and experiment, questions to help take the meaning of the passage, understand it better, and then to do it, to live it out. And so Dan writes this every Monday. You can get a copy delivered into your inbox. Just let Dan know or send a note to the church office and Late Monday, early Tuesday, you'll have a copy of the Encore Guide. We have some of our small groups, Home Bible Study Fellowship groups, use it as their course of study. Some individuals use it for their devotions. Be great if some families would use it. This is the kind of devotion you can do around the table so you're taking the word, which hopefully you understand, and now you're applying it so that we can obey the word. That's the whole goal. Well, look at the result of this in, in verse 17. Their joy was very great. I love that. Their joy. Do you want great joy? I do. I want great joy. Obey the word of God. Daily. And then it says in verse 18, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, they celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulations, there was an assembly. And then it leaves us hanging. <laughs> that's, the end of, that's the end of chapter 8. They obeyed the word of God. And wrapping this up, I want to circle back to where I began for a minute. I told you I love restoring things. I love taking broken things and making them work like new, making them look like new. And I look forward to the day when that old biplane is flying. Me and Gabriel will go fly around. I'm going to have a big rollout party, I think. Y'all will be invited. We're going to have some barbecue and some old 1930s music, and we'll go fly that thing. It'll be fun. But as much as I enjoy doing that, what I love more than restoring something physically is seeing something restored spiritually. And I think there's a reason why this tugs at my heart. Because in that verse I read in Revelation 21, just two verses later, it says, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. 
making them new. I'm taking those broken, worn out, non-working things and I'm making them into something new and beautiful, something better than they ever were. More than physical restoration, I love spiritual restoration, seeing people restored to a right relationship with God. So Nehemiah, he completed this physical restoration on the walls, and now he's focused on the spiritual restoration of the people. That's what the second half of the book is going to be about. And it begins with teaching the word and restoring worship. Now, I'm sure there's areas in every one of our lives where we need to restore worship. And I don't mean what we do here on Sunday morning. That could be part of it, but that's just the start. What we do here on Sunday morning, that's a start, and it should go out from there, out of this building and out into our week. So where do you need to restore worship in your life? Think about it. Where does your life not line up with the word of God? Maybe you need to restore worship in your spiritual life. You might start by setting aside more time for reading and studying of the word, more time for prayer. We've been focusing on that. Maybe it's a greater commitment to taking what you hear on Sunday morning and putting it into practice, like with the Encore Guide, so that you're not deceiving yourself and just listening and nodding and laughing once in a while and going home and doing nothing about it. Maybe you need spiritual restoration. Maybe it means working through that guy. Maybe it's getting plugged into a small group Bible study. See, that would be a right response to who God is and what he wants for us. That would be an act of worship. Maybe you need to restore worship in your work life. Think about that. That too would begin with the right understanding of God's word. How should we view our work? How should we go about our work? Who are we really working for? When we have that right understanding, then even our work becomes an act of worship. Are you going to worship God on Monday morning, Tuesday, all through your work week? Do you need to restore worship to your workplace? Maybe you need to restore worship to your relationships with other people. Maybe there needs to be forgiveness, holiness, purity, selflessness. And this too begins with the right understanding of God's word. We dig into it and he shows us. It should break us and it should lead us to repentance and then a commitment to obeying the word. That's what he wants for us. That's worship. That's a right response to God's word. So don't settle for a broken, run-down Christian life that's not working when you can make it new again. Make a commitment this morning to restoring worship in every area of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sing this song, but we need to know this. It's all about you, God. Worship is about you. It's not about us. The word is about you. And our lives should be about you. God, forgive us for the many times when we've lived selfishly as though it's all about us. Help us. Help us to understand your word, God. And beyond that, help us to respond to it rightly. Help us to obey your word. Help us to worship you in all that we do. And God, we ask this in the name and by the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship together. Will you stand with us?